how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Jim Dimonakis, founder of Seattle's annual Emerald City Comic Con, met Kevin Conrad Hanna, an artist and film director, at the annual event. The two lifelong comic book fans tried a handful of projects together until something finally hit, a documentary about Hellboy creator Mike Mignola. In Mike Mignola Drawing Monsters, Jim and Kevin uncover the story behind Mignola, as told from icons like Neil Gaiman, Doug Jones, Victor Lavelle, Adam Savage, Pat Oswald, and Guillermo del Toro, among others. In this interview, the creators talk about rock star comic book creators. Thinking of yourself as a storyteller, not a filmmaker. Opening the door for subject conversations. The entrepreneurial mindset. And how their Kickstarter campaign raised over half a million dollars from a $58,000 goal. Sure. Uh, this is Jim, and uh, we met on Tinder, um, which is, I'll be honest, a great way to find a collaborator. Um, you obviously have the same interests. You both swipe right. Like, let's let's make a documentary. Director seeking co-director, that type of thing. A sweet, sweet documentary. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> so, no, uh, Kevin and I we've known each other for almost two decades. I started a comic convention in Seattle called Emerald City Comic Con and, uh, and ran that for a very long time. And Kevin was a exhibitor or an artist uh, who exhibited at the event from early on. And we, we became friends and throughout the years we've done um, kind of hilariously ill-fated collaborations uh that never never really came to anything but it kept us in each other's orbits for uh even after uh, I, I no longer was running the event and so that's how, that's how we came together and and started being uh being friends 
was kind of your background? You mentioned a few things there, but what kind of inspired you to get into art and comic and that kind of thing? So I am like a lifelong comic book fan. I started from when I was very young and have been uh, even to this day reading comics. Um, so early on, I found it really frustrating as a comics fan. Now, now keep in mind, um, you know, I'm like 40, I'm 43. So we're talking in the, in the 90s, uh, which was 30 years ago for unfortunately those keeping track of time. Uh, it was not as accessible uh, like it used, like it is now. And so in, in a way to, to find comics, you have to find a, a local shop. Um, and my problem back then was that I couldn't find everything I wanted at a single store. Mm -hmm. And so that actually led to me after college deciding to um, ignore my degree and instead open a comic book store. And after doing the comic book store for a few years, I was like, you know, Seattle really deserves like a good comic book convention, mostly because that would save me from having to travel to San Diego or Chicago to go to another show. I could just build one in my backyard and then I wouldn't have to travel for it. And so that's how I started Emerald City. And that was kind of like, again, my sort of path into um, being a comics professional. Yeah, and I, you know, like so many, I was just a kid who drew and I told, I do illustrations and uh, would show them to my parents and my teachers. And, uh, you know, the joke is that I've just been chasing that high ever since, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I think as we get older, a lot of us just stop that. I just never stopped. So um, I always wanted to create comics. I love the idea of comics being that one or two people can tell an entire story themselves. And um, uh, as a young adult, I was working on my art and portfolio, trying to get into comics. And instead I fell into film and animation. So I started working in LA and started working at Sony on Saturday morning cartoons uh, and started working on music videos and uh, moved up to the Pacific Northwest and started working on stuff for Xbox. Um, and just been working on all kinds of things, video games, music videos, and doing a lot of uh, behind the scenes interviews, uh, EPKs and like making of shows. So for like for the sci-fi channel and for like uh, Damien Ch Chazelle's First Man, but always with this like love and fire for comics. So, and so, you know, Jim and I have been friends for a long time and we could come and hang out, nerd out over different projects, but we were actually, we went out for hamburgers uh, not too long ago and we were just catching up on different things and we were brainstorming. I was just talking about all these interview stuff and how there's all these great character-based documentaries about creators. Um, there's, there's Geo Dreams of Sushi and, you know, like behind the music and, and stuff for musicians and architects and chefs. Uh, but man, no one's more interesting to us and more compelling than these uh, rock star comic book creators who, who spill out these universes outside of their heads um, from their, from just from their imaginations. And then they become these like billion dollar franchises. And so we're like, wow, why has no one made those documentaries? You know, and there's, there's some good ones, but for the most part, like no one has really kind of gone deep and done these character profile documentaries about these 
fantastic creators. We're like, wow, someone should do that. And yeah, someone should. And then uh, like kind of the story of Jim and I's life the whole way is like, we should do that. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, let's do this. So, um, you know, and Jim being the comic book, uh, world-renowned comic book convention and comic book writer and comic book rock star, all those things are true, um, had all the relationships with, uh, you know, she's like just a pillar of the comic book industry because everyone know, has known him as the person to put on these things that are just of quality and of integrity. And so uh, that opened a lot of doors for us to kind of get started. So Jim, what was either the beginning of this film or maybe the early days of the comic convention? I want to try to address this to like young documentary filmmakers who have some credibility, but maybe not quite where you were at making this. What are you, what are you saying? How are you pitching this in a way? Is it an email? Is it a phone call? What are some of the logistics of how you're like bringing people into this world to interview them? Yeah, so for me, it's been an interesting path because I, I'm not, I didn't come from it initially as a filmmaker in the sense that when I think of myself or what, when I was starting this, I wasn't really thinking of myself as a filmmaker, which I know sounds weird, but I, I'm coming from it from this, the, the point of view of I'm, I'm trying to tell a story. I'm really like, I'm a storyteller. I've written in graphic novels. I've done a bunch of stuff, but I saw I, when I was approaching the people who we wanted to talk to, it was sort of like, yeah, this will be on film, but I'm here to ask questions and and get a story out of you. I'm, I'm, it's like wanting to sit down and just have a chat like you would with your friends and ask them about a, a part of their lives that maybe they don't talk about as much, not because it's um, too sensitive or anything, but just the idea that, okay, well, this doesn't really come up very often. So when I was approaching people, it was like, yes, there will be a camera, but really, can we just sit down and talk about this thing that you would happily nerd out about online or with your friends or anything, but instead uh, I want you to tell it to us. And I think that, that approach made it feel a little more like, okay, we're not trying to put you under a microscope, but instead we want to have a conversation with you that will uh, open the door to telling stories about the subject that we're trying to cover. If that makes sense. It's a little, it was coming from a little bit of a different angle, less so the like, I'm a filmmaker. I want to make a film about you and, or I want you to be in my film it was more, let's talk about stories and how stories evolve. And then let's talk about the people who make those stories and their stories, if that makes sense, right? It's a little circular, but the whole idea was that was the approach more so than, hey, we're making a documentary film. Do you want to be in it? Mm -hmm. Which has 
a much different vibe to it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing that we did was we, we built as we went. So for people that we maybe didn't have immediate access to, we would cut specific. So, you know, if it, we would get the interviews that we were, that were, that people had agreed to. Um, and then from there, we would cut together these sizzle reels that would specifically target another person that we wanted to talk to, to show them that we're not wasting their time, that we're doing something of quality, that we're doing something with integrity. We're not, you know, dubbing over fart sound effects or biff bam pow, you know, visuals or anything like that. And I, I think that was, you know, we just would, we would say like, look, we got this, this one person and, and look how well we did with, with it. And then people would, would want to get on and then give us greater access. And so you kind of build that as you go. So, you know, you start small and then just keep building onto that. Did you prepare in a way that like, did you ask some, did you ask certain questions to everyone and then certain specific ones? How did you think about things like that in order to like fill out all the pieces of an entire movie? We, we study a lot. We, you know, it helps that we, we travel a lot for these because it gives us a lot of time to sit on trains and airplanes and, but we figure it all out before we go anywhere. And then we rehearse and practice and try to figure out the right angles. Uh, there are some questions, especially for like, when talking about Mike Mignola that were universal, you know, how, when did you first approach his work? What does his work mean to you? But you know, a lot of, a lot of the people that we had interviewed had already done a lot of it interviews. And so we listened to or read every possible interview. Um, and so we went in like ultra prepared and kind of knew the story we were going for. That said, you know, it's, it's a bucking Bronco. And so uh, you learn things on the fly and surprise, you know, awesome surprises. And you have to be ready for that and, and try to kind of like um, jump in with new questions and, and uh, explore those new stories that had, hadn't been heard before. Do you guys see overlap in your partnership in terms of like strengths and that type of thing? Or is there certain ways like this person always says this, or do you kind of both do a little bit of everything? I think it's overlapping weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I say that in the best way possible, because I think that we recognize where both of us have um, gaps in our, whether it's in our knowledge or in presentation or in what we do. And so what we've been able to do is really be like, okay, I know that you are better at this thing. So why don't you take the lead, you know, uh, on doing the interview with this person? Because I think you're more knowledgeable or you have a better relationship and then vice versa, where it's like, okay, I know this person really well. I think they're going to be more comfortable talking to me. So why don't I take the lead on it? And we really look at each interview and say, okay, like who's going to, who's going to feel uh, better about doing this? Who's going to be uh, a, a more straightforward with the answers? Who's going to do this or that? And so I think, and that, and that plays out throughout our production process. Like, you know, Kevin's a, an awesome editor. So it's like, okay, I'll give you, here's the ideas I have in my head, but you're the one that can turn them into a reality. And I can be the one that can get access to this person. So like, maybe I should do that interview, that kind of thing. I think that's where um, 
you know, obviously we have our strengths as well. It's not just like 100% weakness, which uh, is good. But I, I do think that that's what we think about a lot is how do we complement each other? And I feel like we're also old enough that um, we just don't have a lot of ego about these things. And so I don't care, like, whose name is first in the credits or who, you know what I mean? Or who is doing what? All I care about is that we're producing a good product. And I think sometimes people let themselves get in their own way because they're like, oh man, you know, like I just really want it to say this. And it's like, you know, sometimes that's just not how it works out. And part of that comes from experience and time and just a comfort level of saying, you know what, we're, we're just, we're partners. Let's just do it. And whatever works out, works out. And then both our names are there, but we know that we'll both be putting in the same amount of work. So Jim, like with the Comic-Con and the film, it seems like you're very willing to kind of jump into something where you don't know all the pieces, even like where the money's coming from, which maybe led to your Kickstarter. What advice do you have for like finding this confidence or just knowing we'll figure it out and we're not, maybe it's like we can push a deadline or whatever, as long as we make the best thing possible. Like what is your mindset around that kind of thing? So I'll be honest. I never have thought of myself as a particularly like confident person. Um, Just, and, and I say that very plainly, I think what, I had that a lot of people didn't have is I had really good role models growing up. And by that, I mean, so my parents, they emigrated from Greece and um, they opened a restaurant and a very almost typical um, immigrant story. You know, I grew up in restaurants, but it it sounds like, okay, so, you know, there's a specific work ethic that came with that. But the other thing that I saw that I didn't realize is that I never saw my parents work for anybody else. So, and I think that environment is something that, not that I took for granted, but I just, I guess I never realized how much of an effect, took me a long time, I guess, to say how, how long, how it took me a long time to realize what effect that had on me, which is. I always looked at it as like, well, why don't I just do this thing? I don't need someone else to give me permission. I don't need someone else to tell me what to do. I'll just do it because that's what I saw growing up. Like no, my parents didn't go to like the restaurant licensing board to be like, please, sir, can I have a restaurant? Like, that's not how that stuff works. It's like, you just, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do a restaurant. And by doing that, that's when like, you know, after I graduated college and don't get me wrong, I've had jobs where obviously I've worked for others, but, you know, pretty quickly I was like, I think I'm good. Like, I I think I can just do this. And I I just, and that's, and so there's a certain measure of um, my environment actually, I feel helped propel this idea. And so it's hard to say to someone else who has, had a much different life experience where they're saying, okay, all I've seen is my parents were accountants and, you know, they worked for an accounting firm and they worked a nine to five and came home. And, you know, there's obviously nothing wrong with that, but if that's what you saw your whole life, it's, it's hard to then be like, 
oh, wait, you could just be, you could start your own accounting firm. You don't have to work for an accounting firm. You can do it yourself. And so it's, I would say advice wise, it's a very kind of almost cliche, but just like you can do it yourself. And to, to be fair, I worked a lot of jobs for other people while I was trying to do my own thing. And there's nothing wrong. And I think this is the, the thing that people don't talk about, which is it's okay to be working at a job and doing your passion on the side until your passion can pay the bills. Because I'm not going to pretend that it was like, okay, I just decided one day to do my own thing. And immediately it worked out financially and it worked out great. No, that's not like I, even when I decided to open my comic book store while I was literally, I put my comic book store on credit cards while I was, you know, also freelance web designing, trying to like make sure to pay the bills while I literally was opening a store. You know what I mean? So like, I, I don't want to, pretend that it's you know sunshine and roses it's like a lot of hard work and it's okay for you to do something else while you're trying to get to the point where you can do the thing that you really want to do i i think being smart about it too and strategic like creating a documentary about mike mignola who we both have a lot of love for like he's, he's our favorite comic book creator um, was, it made a lot of sense because we came in, we were already to a, to a degree, we were already experts, but it was also a project that could scale with us. So we could do a simple version of it. That is, you know, just one initial interview that it would be edited down and that would, you know, make a really good YouTube featurette. And as we were able to kind of move with it and, and evolve the project, um, it could become more ambitious. It could start to meet our ambition. And I think when you're starting a project, picking a project that you have, you know, like you shouldn't just start with saying, I have my Star Wars and I want to make my Star Wars. And as soon as I find someone to give me a hundred million dollars, then I can make it. But until then I can't make anything. Um, I think starting with something that, that can scale with you or where you're at um, and looking at what you have, which is like, you know, Maybe you don't have a Jim Demonaco, so you can talk to Mike Mignola directly, uh, but maybe you have a very interesting sibling and you could follow them around with the camera. Or maybe you know a story in your hometown that's interesting and you can follow that around with the camera. Um, and, you know, just kind of starting from where you are. So as you guys scale to like a full feature, what surprised you to most, like the most? So to give you an example, like I didn't, until recently, I wasn't aware of some of the um, fair use and copyright laws and everything that goes to lawyers and that's like archival footage licensing what kind of surprised you as you started to like well maybe this would go to someone like a netflix like what were some of those barriers like that i mean we're still we're still learning a lot of that <laughs> um and i think we'll be learning that and by the time we've done our sixth or seventh documentary as well um i i think one of the the things that we learned is that that you do need to kind of drive your own destiny to find success. Uh, when we were just working out this on the conceptual phase, you know, people were definitely interested in talking to us, but not nearly to the level of when we took it to Kickstarter. And once we were able to show that people 
gen that the interest was there. Once we were able to say, this is the thing that we're making and there's an audience for it and kind of prove that out, um, there's a lot of momentum that comes from that. So it's, it's I guess it's, it's very obvious, but you actually need to start succeeding for other people to want to kind of boost you up and, and come on board and be part of it. And, um, and that's, it, that's great, but it's definitely like, it, you can't sit and wait for things to happen. Even if you're making good content, you actually have to build an audience and get some success out of it. How much prep went into the Kickstarter? So when I, when I saw you guys on Kickstarter, I think you had just interviewed Neil Gaiman. And I was like, well, wherever these guys are at, they've got it. So they're, you know, they're, it's, this is going to happen is what I saw from it. But what was your perspective? Were you adjusting it? Like how many days did you do it? And that type of thing. Yeah, our Kickstarter, it was, I mean, I would say it was a solid two months of lead up. Um, and even before that, I, I mean, so in October, so thinking about this, so in October of 2020 is when Kevin and I decided we should put this on Kickstarter. And that was six months before it launched so that it was ready to go March of 2021 um a lot of that time you know I, i'm not going to pretend like we spent every single day on it but once we made that decision it started informing what we started working on because we had come to a bit of a, a standstill of course with the pandemic about doing any extra filming and we were also at a point where we're a little bit at a crossroads of what we're going to do next with this documentary. Like you mentioned, like we had, we had successfully, by interviewing Mike, that had opened a few more doors for us. And Kevin and I rolled the dice and we went to the UK uh, again, just self-financing. Like we flew to London and we interviewed Neil Gaiman and about five others while we were there. Um, and we came back and we're like, okay, we have all, and again, sorry, this is all before pre-pandemic, right? Yeah. And then our, we were like, okay, who else do we want so that we could, let's call it, finish this film? And we'd made a list and then pandemic happened and we sort of just put a pause on it for a number of months. And then not that things were getting better, but by October of 2020, we were like, okay, wh what are we doing here? You know, right now we've, we've sort of, we all went through our like pandemic sadness for a little while and like, you know, woe is us. And then we're like, okay, well, now let's shake that off and see what's next. And so October, we we're like, okay, let's do a Kickstarter that could finance, you know, the, the rest of our interviews when we're able to go back out on the road and then that could pay for editing. And like I mentioned earlier, like Kevin's a good editor, Kevin's, he can do color correction. He can do sound design, but like when you're trying to make something big or a good feature, we're like, well, we should also look to pay the people who do this for a living. So we set our goal pretty low, to be honest, but that's all right. But we spent uh, a number of months getting the artwork because the thing about Mignola is that obviously he's defined, one of the things that is defined by is his artwork, not just his writing. And he's created this whole world. So we got artists uh, to contribute new pieces of art. All that takes time. So 
And then I would say January, February, it was like a daily thing that we were getting ready for the launch of the Kickstarter. And then no lie, like during the Kickstarter, it is a daily thing. Like it was just our job to run that Kickstarter, especially because it was, um, you know, we feel very lucky and blessed that like it was a runaway success meant every single day we had something new that we needed to figure out or talk about or we'll figure out a stretch goal. And then there was interviews and you name it. So I would say the thing that really saved us though, was the amount of prep work we did. You know, we, we really went in with a really solid plan. And by doing that, we were able to navigate the waters of the Kickstarter for the month that it was running. Sorry, that was a very long answer to That's say nice. that it, it's it was a lot of work up front and then even more work during the Kickstarter. I feel like the day after it ended, I actually felt like physically exhausted. Like April 1st, I didn't even turn on the computer. I was like, I am taking one complete day off and I slept for like half the day and it was awesome. Anyway. <laughs> So, so the kick, Kickstarter is over now. Where are you guys at? What's kind of next for this film that you're aware of? Um, yeah, so we are, I don't know if you can see behind me, the camera's not quite pointed at it, but uh, we have about 60% of it already filmed. Um, we have a paper edit with the scene descriptions of what we want uh, to do next and how we're going to populate each of the scenes where we have kind of a... a a living rough edit of the documentary in its current state. So right now we're planning one more uh, kind of world tour. So we're going to both East Coast and West Coast um, at, with all the additional interviews that we have yet to do. Um, and, and then we're just really kind of pushing on this living edit um, and trying to get it into as much shape as we can with the footage that we have, uh, just because it, it it becomes very telling as the movie starts to take shape um, and kind of fulfill like the, the story structure that we have where, um, you know, the simple example that we always use is that Mike, this is a silly example, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Mike talks about being an inker and how he started as an inker. And at no point do we have anyone explain what an inker is, or he talks about, well, you, of course I had to go to New York and us as comic book ner nerds know that that is because he has, uh, that's where Marvel and DC are and you have to be local. But the, you know, certain silly things like that, you definitely need to kind of get those details in there to make sense. Um, but then also, you know, dramatic beats where you'll actually have um, people talk about certain stories and you hear it from one side and you didn't, and it was a story that hadn't been told before. And so now you're going back to do a second interview and you wanna get the follow up on a very important um, emotional story beat. With everything you guys have been through with your backgrounds, um, when I see some of these successes like yours on Kickstarter, it seems like you've already built a following. Why not just, you've made some money. Why not just do Blu-rays or figuring out a way just to work with the fans? But I know the goal was for every, as many people to see it as possible, but what's kind of your perspective on that after going through this in parallel with maybe like self-publishing or that type of thing? It seems like all these things are coming around especially today where it's harder to get things on the big platforms anyway. What are your kind of thoughts on that type of thing? Um, so my perspective is I'm 100% I'm with you. I love, I mean, I think Kickstarter has 
really changed the game for a lot of people. And I, you know, listen, our world is really heavily in comics and the amount of, I think there's a study, a thing that came out last year that if you considered Kickstarter a publisher, which they're not, right? But like, if you considered Kickstarter a publisher, they would be like the third largest publisher of comics because how many comics were funded through Kickstarter. That opportunity is something that was not there even, you know, like 10 years ago. And I think it's really changed people's idea of what they can do. So now you're seeing people who do have built a following, even if it's at Marvel in DC, or they've just built a following with their own thing, they go to Kickstarter and they're like, great, here's a collection of the thing that you love. Here's my brand new project. And then you see publishers getting interested in projects that do well. And it's become this, like, there's this saying, like, you know, if you want to be a writer in comics, the best way to do it is to write a bunch of comics. So that when someone's like, can you write comics? You're like, here, look, I published, here's, here's all these comics I've written. So someone can read them and be like, great. You can't just be like, I'm a writer. I want to be a writer in comics. Why? Well, you know, like I've got a really good Spider-Man story. It's like, okay, well, like that doesn't mean anything. And I think the same thing has now happened is happening with film as well, where we're saying, okay, um, you know, I, I make no secret of the fact that I've never made a film before, but I, I know all the, I know all the pieces and I'm teaming up with people who do. And we are saying that we're trying to give you something that you're not going to see from a, uh, or, or that you haven't seen yet from maybe a larger platform. And we could go directly to the fans and do that, which I think is really exciting. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I agree. It's, Growing up, it was like this aspiration of like independent comics and, you know, like Eastman and Laird had made Ninja Turtles for, I think like $800 or something like that. Uh, and making an independent film, of course, was ridiculously expensive. Uh, now it is cheaper than ever, but you're still, with rare exception, it's gonna be really hard to find a big company that is gonna wanna sponsor you as a, as a new filmmaker. Um, but if you can, create something that directly speaks to an audience, to fans and take it to Kickstarter or a different like crowdsourcing platform, you actually can find an awesome way to start there. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.